Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, let me invite you to take them out and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I want to welcome those of you watching online. Uh, if you're turning on your device, we are at the conclusion of our series through the Ten Commandments. Today we come to the final commandment, the Tenth Commandment, found in Exodus chapter 20. I'm reminding you just kind of the, the background of that. The Lord rescues the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. He delivers them over uh, by splitting the sea, and they, they make their way into the wilderness, and He draws them close at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the Lord comes down from the mountain in this, in this uh, uh, pillar of smoke and thunder and lightning and the sound of trumpets, and He begins to speak to them, and He gives them His law. He gives them how they are to uh, respond to Him. But, but remember, the anchor verse for us is Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. For I brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God who did this. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a verse of grace and mercy. God has rescued them. God has saved them. God has done this for them. And in response, He gives them the laws by which they are to live, both helping the civil society, but ultimately He says, if you love Me, if you're thankful, if your gratitude for Me rescuing you is to be real, then respond in this way. I have told you this many times over the last few weeks, but I, I'm so thankful that the Lord does not leave it up to our imagination in how we are to worship Him. He tells us specifically what He wants from us. If you love me, obey my commandments. Do what I've asked you to do. If you love me, if you're transformed by me, then obey me. But, but let's be clear and let's celebrate. God did not expect obedience from them prior to the rescue. He didn't make them obey and then He rescued them. He rescued them because He's a gracious God. And that is the gospel story for us. Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 is the gospel in the Old Testament. Just as we hear in the New Testament, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but by the grace of God, but by the goodness of God, but by the mercy of God, He rescued us through Jesus Christ. So Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 is the gospel. It reminds us that all of us who've come to Christ have been rescued by grace. And so what is our response to this grace? It is to obey Him. And so I would submit to you that the Ten Commandments should be studied and meditate on. We should see them both in the Old and in the New Testament. We should try to follow them and adhere to them because this is our act of obedience to the Lord who's saved us. Now we find ourselves in the last one. One that I would imagine is not normally in our vocabulary. We do not usually use the word covet very often in our modern day terminology. It doesn't seem to be a word that rolls off our lips, but we find the very last commandment. In fact, if you'll join me in verse 17, we'll read through verse 21 and we'll see the end of this part of the Ten Commandments story. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. Now verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain of smoke, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick 
darkness where God was. Let's pray over this this morning. Father, um, teach us uh, what, it, what it means to draw near to you. Teach us what it means to obey. Teach us, Lord, what it means to wrestle with uh, coveting, Father. Help us. We, we don't use this word. It doesn't, it doesn't come up a lot in our normal vocabulary. And so help us see what, what it means. Father, we, we even read verse 17, Lord, and, and we don't think about ox and donkey. Uh, and so, Lord, just help us. Help, help us see what your truth is here for all eternity for us. And may we leave this place Uh, Father, wanting, desiring to obey, but Father, even more, may we leave this place worshiping and relishing in how Jesus has obeyed for us. Uh, Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. We are all accustomed to rules. Uh, From the very beginning of life, we're given rules. We're given rules as children. Don't run, stay in line, share. We, We know rules. We like rules. When you go to play a baseball game, there's a set of rules you must follow. When you play a a football game, there's a set of rules you must follow. When you play golf, there's a set of rules. Unless you're keeping score, then you can change it a little. But there's a set of rules that you're supposed to follow. That's the the goal of the game. We're we're all, and even in adults, when you clock in at your job, they they gave you an orientation about what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. We're, We're all given rules. We're given rules in the civil society. We know the speed limit and red lights and stop signs and and we understand rules. And and the thing about our rule-based world is the reason why we like rules is because if you give me a rule and I don't break it, I feel good about myself. I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm doing well. I'm I'm moral. I'm ethical. I'm a good guy if I follow the rules. And oftentimes when we approach the 10 commandments, we can simply see them as a set of rules. And if we read down them and realize, well, I haven't broken this one, or I haven't broken this one, or I haven't broken this one, then then I'm doing okay. And you may do that. You may read down the Ten Commandments and say, well, thou shalt not steal. Well, I've, I'm not taking anything today. I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm a moral person. Or, or do not commit adultery. Well, I haven't, I haven't done that. So, so I'm a moral person. And so when we read the Ten Commandments, if we're not careful, we can think to ourselves that we're doing well just because we see them at face value and we follow them. But brothers and sisters, the Tenth Commandment does not let that happen. Because just when we think that somehow morality or right standing before God is based on what we do externally, the the Tenth Commandment looks straight into our heart. There is no guesswork with the Ten Commandment of where it's aiming. It's not aiming at what you do. If we were to say the Tenth Commandment means don't steal, well, we've already seen that commandment. It's already in the list. So now what we find in the Tenth Commandment is don't have a desire in your heart to take something that's not Yours. So now the 10th commandment says, and, and really it, it's a wonderful way for the, for the passage to help us here in the 10 commandments, is the 10th commandment elevates this idea that God is looking at your heart. That God is looking at your heart. That God is examining what's on the inside. That you may look moral to the world on the outside. You may not take what's not yours. Or, or you may uh, marry to your wife faithfully for many years. There may be all the markers of morality. But God is searching the heart. And so I would submit to you first and simply this. We must see in the 10th commandment, it is a searching commandment. It is digging down deep into our heart. It is looking down into the very intensity inner self of mankind. It is not worried with external things. It is worried with what's happening in our heart. It is introspective. 
God says, I'm looking at your desires, your wants, what's going on inside of you. And think about it. It is practically speaking, if you look at the list of Ten Commandments, it is the one in which you cannot convict. You cannot have a trial on the Tenth Commandment. If we were to look at the commandments where it says you shall not murder, it's pretty obvious to have witnesses, a jury, a judge, and convict whether or not murder occurred. If we were to say thou shalt not steal, it's pretty obvious that you can have a jury, you can have a trial, you can have witnesses, and you can convict. But when we say you shall not covet, there is no way to force that on the law books. There's no way to enforce that. There's no way for the civil society to see whether or not you or I in our heart is coveting. There's no way to do it. And so what we see here in this 10th commandment is that God is pressing down further than what we do with our hands and our mouths. He's pressing to what's going on in our heart. He's searching us. He's looking deep in this 10th commandment of what's happening. He's, he's pressing in on to determine where is your heart's affection. D.L. Moody would put it this way, writing on this passage. He would say, our innermost life, invisible to mortal eye, is laid bare before him. You may see me be faithful to my wife. You may see me not steal. You may watch me not murder. You may observe that I do not take the Lord's name in vain. To you, I may look moral and right and holy and righteous, but God's looking into my heart. God sees deeper. God, God drills down. He searches us and knows our desires. God is not like man that He would look at our outside. but He looks on the inside. And so this 10th commandment, while it seems almost light compared to the others, it is a way in which the 10 commandments finish with this idea that God is looking inside. He's diving in. In fact, I, I would simply say, if you look at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And you look at the 10th commandment, do not covet your neighbor's stuff. God is reminding us that, that the first and the last are a heart issue. That, that, that all of the ones in the middle will only be carried out if our heart is right. If we're right in our desires to see God, it is a searching command. And this command, what it does is it dismantles, it destroys, it demolishes any idea for morality in action. What do I mean by that? Brothers and sisters, if you place your right standing before God based on your external behavior, you have placed your trust in the wrong place. Because external behavior is not what God desires. Yes, if our heart is right, yes, there is a call to obey. Yes, there's a call to action. Yes, we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. But all of that begins, as Jesus would tell us, flowing out of the heart. And so ultimately what the 10th commandment does is it dismantles any sense of pride we might have that we are somehow right with God based on the way we behave. When God says, I desire what's in your heart. I desire what's happening under you. In fact, we see this conversation in the New Testament. Jesus would dealing with the Pharisees, those that were the most religious, those that were the most moral in the appearance of society, those that were the hierarchy of what religion looked like. Jesus would look at them with these famous words and say, you are whitewashed tombs. Now, the modern translation would that be simply your gravestone looks good, but inside it's just dead bones. He's searching their heart. You may look good on the outside. But I'm looking inside. I'm searching your heart. So the, so the tenth commandment is a, a searching commandment. 
It looks deep inside of us. It, it wonders what our desires are. It wonders what's going on inside of us. It, it reminds us that sin flows out of us, not because of our environment, but because we ourselves are sinners fallen far from the glory of God. It is a searching commandment. Now this commandment, if we look at it together, verse 17, it is specific about coveting, and he uses the neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not cover your neighbor's male servant, female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your heart. The commandment points to a twisted desire of human nature to always want something we don't have. We always want one more thing. We always want one more uh, acquirement. We always want one more uh, accolade. We're always looking for something else. We're never content in our own fallen nature. And so this gets right to the heart of this idea that the, the goal of our lives is not to acquire more. The goal of our lives is to find contentment in what we have. And ultimately, that's in Christ. And so he, he literally is pressing in on us this idea here that, that deep in our heart is this twisted desire to always want something else. Now, we don't usually use this word in modern idea, but we might say something like envy or, or jealous. One writer put it this way. He said, in my southern dialect, we use the word hankering. I got a hankering for a bigger house. I got a hankering for another car. I got a hankering for a different wife or husband i got a hankering for another job that would make me more money. You see, we can, we can have good hankerings. I'm hungry. I, I need a hankering for some food that will help feed my belly. But then we can have very evil desires. And, and we can begin to move into covetedness. We can move away from God. He's searching our hearts. This is the call of this text. How do we do this? Let's think about some ways that this happens in our life. When we're children, it's always the toy in the other person's hand. I may have a hundred toys in my toy box, but if you got one in your hand, that's the one I want. That, that's the life of child. Every parent in here understands that, right? Every grandparent, that's, that's coveting. That's a desire for something we don't have that we think will make it right. But how do we do this as adults? Oh, we do it all the time. My neighbor got a new truck. I'm mad at him because I want a new truck. My, my friend at work got that promotion. I'm angry because I should have gotten it. My, 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 uh, my friends get to go on these really expensive vacations flying around the world. We got to eat peanut butter and jelly and stay in the car. I, I, I'm jealous. I'm, I'm coveting. I'm, I'm angry. Man, they, they, got a, they got a cool piece of hunting land. I, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous. I'm, I'm coveting. I'm angry. If I just had that, and, and usually what happens, it would work this way. If I just had blank, I would be happy. The problem is, blank never works out, right? If I just had this, if I just had that, if I just had one more thing. But we have deep-seated in our heart this desire to be satisfied. And what one author would simply say this, we're sipping salt water. It never works. It never meets our thirst. And the 10th commandment searches deep down in our heart to say, why are you constantly looking for something else? Why are you always struggling with finding what God desires for you. We want bigger houses, new cars, better clothes. We want more skills. We want the promotion. We want the accolades. We wish we had a different talent. I, I sometimes sit on this pew and covet the skills of those that sing. I wish I could do that. They wish I could do that, right? I, I wish I could sing. Like there, There's this desire of God. I want something else. And that's sinful. That's 
broken. So here's what I've done. I, I found an article written by Kevin DeYoung where he gives a couple of diagnostic questions. I, I thought they were so good that if I gave them to you, you'd know they weren't mine. So I might as well give you him credit, right? I might as well tell you it came from somebody smarter than me. But here's a couple of things to diagnose your covenant heart. No amening that, by the way. Here's a couple of ideas of diagnosing your covenant heart. So here's a couple of coveting diagnostics. One, you might be coveting if you hurt others in order to move, uh, move or make more for yourself. Excuse me. You might cut. You might hurt others. So, so I want that promotion. So I'm going to start this gossip or talk down about this other person. I I want this this thing. So I'm going to work against. I'm going to neglect this person. I'm going to step on this person. I'm going to hurt this person because it will better me. It will help me in the pursuit of stuff, promotion, skills, power, influence. So we, we covet something, and the way to get there is to push down someone else. That might be a situation where you're fighting, covenanting. What about this one? You might be coveting if you're uh, preoccupied with accumulating more. If all you ever think about is when I get this or when I get that, then, then your, your mind is working in your heart's desire. Jesus would say, show me your treasure, I'll show you your heart. That's where it's at. So if your mind is constantly built on, when I get this, when I get that, I can't wait to accumulate this, I, I can't wait to have that, then, then you might be a person who's fighting this sin. There might be a struggle there. But I think this next one probably is the most clear. It's simply this. You might be coveting if you're unwilling to give up what you already have. If you're greedy, stingy, now, listen, let's be very clear. The Bible has many topics through it, especially through the book of Proverbs, that we are called to work hard. We are called to save up. We are called to enjoy the fruits of this life. There's, there's nothing wrong with the vehicle you drive or, or the boat you want to purchase or the golf clubs that you have. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if those become the pursuit of your heart to the point where you will not help, aid, or bless others, you got problems. you got issues. If it, if it keeps you from being generous then maybe you've fallen into coveting. Let me give you one more, and this one probably is just an everyday battle in our heart. You might be coveting if you're always grumbling about your general state of life. You're always grumbling, right? Let's just think about this for just a minute. Boy, I wish I had a better paying job. Boy, I wish I didn't have this ratty truck. Boy, I wish my house was bigger. Boy, I wish my wife aged like that wife. I wish my husband looked like that, right? We joke, but that's what we do, right? We, we grumble. I wish my kids behaved that way. I wish I had more kids. I wish I had less kids. You're always grumbling. You're never satisfied. You're never happy. You're always, you're always I wish I had that purse. I wish I had that uh, gun. I, I wish I had that deck on my house. I wish I had that opportunity. I wish I had that platform. We're always grumbling about the state of our life. And that shows that we are coveting because we're not content. We must see this commandment as a searching commandment. Now, let me give you a second idea from this text, and that's simply this. We must see this commandment as a serious commandment. Now, when I read the Ten Commandments, I have no other gods before me at number one seems like it's in the best spot. Like You've got to start there. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. Right? Commandment number two. Do not make for yourself graven images. You better worship God the right way. Commandment number three, do not take the Lord's name in vain. You better get his name right. He's worthy of our worship. We don't sully his name. Commandment number four, 
honor, respect, set aside the Sabbath, right? Keep a holy idea that we need to constantly go back to the Lord and reset our life. And then the commandments start to get practical about each other. Honor your father and mother. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Those all seem like really big ones. So when you get to number 10 and it says do not covet, let's be honest, it feels a little anticlimactic. It doesn't feel like this big, huge sin that ought to finish the list. It seems like, well, try not to be greedy. Well, try not to look at your neighbor's truck and be jealous, right? Try, try not to look at your friend's house and, and you know, don't be jealous. It, it seems like it's not as serious. And so what I want to do is I want to make sure we understand how serious this is. And, and part of the reason why it doesn't seem serious is because, listen, in all of our gatherings, in all of our prayer meetings, in all of our confessions of sin, I'll go out on a limb. Excuse me, I'll go out on a limb and say that we don't sit around and confess this one. Right? We might confess, I'm, I'm battling anger, I'm battling lust, I need help with my finances, I need someone to pray for my health, I'm really struggling here, I'm really struggling there. But you probably never heard a prayer list where somebody goes, man, I'm really coveting, would y'all pray for me? It doesn't usually make the conversation. And so we have this ability to think that it's not very important. But I want you to just see the seriousness of this sin for just a moment. I want you to understand how big a deal it is. First and foremost, I want you to know it's serious because it made God's top ten list. When we think about the Ten Commandments, when we think about what God gave Moses, when we think about what was written in stone for all eternity, placed in the Ark of the Covenant, when we think about what God determined was important for us, He decided that this one should make the list. So, so there in large, we should see this is very serious. We shouldn't run past it. We shouldn't just say, well, we all battle that one. That's no big deal. I'm going to work on the others. We should see it in this totality of that this is a big deal. I would remind you that all of us are in the state of sin because of coveting. That the very fall in Genesis chapter 3 is because of coveting. You, you remember the story. Adam and Eve are created and placed in the garden. God gives them all of the trees. He gives them dominion over all the animals. He gives them a job to toil the ground and to, to be a shepherd over all that He's given them, to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children, to worship the Lord. They commune with God. And He had one rule. Do not eat of that tree. Why did God give them that rule? Because it was to establish for them, and remember, this is the topic of the day, that we are constantly in need of submission. That they were to submit to a holy God. They were to remember daily they are not in charge. They are not in control. That God holds all the cards. That God's in charge of everything. And it is best for them when they submit to God. And is this not our heart's desire that we understand in faith in Christ that the best thing for us is to submit to God? And so they find themselves supposed to submit to God and then Satan comes alone and begins to tempt them about the fruit of that one tree. All the other garden is open to them. But the one toy they couldn't have, that one bigger house, that fancy truck the neighbor bought, it's just over here whispering in their ear, look at me, look at me. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, here's what happened. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to her eyes and the tree was to be desired, coveted, longed for, what did she do? To make one wise, she took the fruit and she ate it, and then she also gave it to her husband, and she was with her, or he was with her, and they ate. You see where this sin is serious now. 
The very fall of mankind, the very sin that comes into all of us at birth, the very sin that is in our nature, the very fall of human race began with coveting something they were not supposed to have. This is a serious sin. Let me remind you what Jesus had to say about it. Look at Mark chapter 7 with me on the screen. Jesus thought it was serious. In Mark chapter 7, he says, From within and out of the heart a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Can you just look at that list of evil sins? There's some bad ones up there. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, wickedness, sensuality, slander, pride. I mean, these are the who's who's of sin. And notice right in the middle. Coveting. I think the Lord thinks it's a big deal. I think the Lord's telling us not to glance over it, not to run past it, not to think that it's just something we all deal with, and so we, we might as well just move on from it. I, I think the Lord would tell us, Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 5, that if you get caught in this sin, you won't get to heaven. You won't make it. Listen to Ephesians 5 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is a covetedness, this means that you're an idolater, you're seeking things that God didn't want for you, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you break this sin, if you find that your heart is desiring something that's not yours, that you're not supposed to have, that you're twistedly trying to work towards, if you find yourself in this sin, Paul says you won't make it in the kingdom of God. It's an indicting sin. It's a serious sin because it not only separates us from God and what He desires, but it indicts us. And let us be clear, if we break the Tenth Commandment, we will break all the others. Because if our heart will imagine it, if our mind will desire it, then we'll eventually go and get it, and that's stealing. We will eventually take the spouse that's not ours, and that's adultery. We'll eventually fill our life pursuing the things that are not of God, and that's breaking the first commandment. We will do what is necessary to fill our wants. So if we don't take the tenth commandment serious, we are in danger of breaking all of them. We're in danger of falling into the sin of how serious it is. God says this is a serious sin. Sin. It is not something that should be taken lightly. Even James would tell us in James chapter 4 that this is the sin that causes fighting in the church. He would say, why do you quarrel among us in James chapter 4? Because of the passions and the covetousness in your heart. You want what you want, and somebody else wants what they want, and you go after them in such a way that there's fighting in the congregation, that it will lead to destroyment of the church. James is serious about this sin. It will kill you. It will drag you away from God. It will make you an idolater. It will make you looking for things that God never intended you to have. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, gives a little analogy. I thought it was really a great analogy. He says, as a ferryman takes on so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat. So a covetous man takes on so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. The ferryman takes on so many thinking he's going to get rich that it works against him and he sinks to the bottom. We think more and more and more is good and all it does is sink us to the pits of hell. It moves us away from God. Brothers and sisters, this is a serious sin. It is important for us to see it and know it and watch this way. So how do we do it? How do we fight against it? Let me give you some practical advice this morning. How do you fight covetousness? How do you fight this? Because I would suggest that we all battle this one. We all battle one more thing, one more promotion, one more acquirement. We all battle looking in somebody else's yard and thinking the grass is greener. We all battle this sin. So how do we fight it? Well, the first thing I would say is simply this. We must be resolved to be content with Christ. The answer to coveting is found in the first commandment. Seek God. Go after God. 
Find your fulfillment in God. Know that Christ is all that you need. Know that you have everything you need when you have Christ. Brothers and sisters, the greatest need that you have is the forgiveness of your sin and the promise of eternal life. And Christ has given you that. And Christ has promised to walk with you. And Christ has promised to provide you. And Christ has promised to strengthen you. So may I not have that bigger house or that better truck or that that age that I want again. Or the, the weather may not be like I like it and I'm grumbling about it. But I have Christ in that enough that's all i need in fact the writer of hebrews would put it this way in hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for has he not said i will never leave you nor forsake you i have christ paul knew this the apostle paul in the book of philippians writing from a prison cell writing from chains not sure if he'll be released or killed, writes these famous words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, fa- of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says, I, I've faced it all. I, I've had a lot. I've been on top of the mountain. I've been poor and broke. He, he was in a prison cell. I've been low. He said, in all of those circumstances, I had everything I needed because I had Christ. Christ. This is the answer to fighting it, is to seek the Lord, to be content in the Lord. But let me give you a second idea here. Let me give you a second truth. Uh, be a coveter of Christ. I want you to notice with me. Look in your Bible, verse 17. I want you to notice something interesting. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You notice that it doesn't say you shall not covet. I mean, we shorten it down to that, so for memory, you shall not covet. But that's not what it says. It says you shall not covet, and then it gives us the object. You shall not covet your neighbor. And and let's be clear, this list here, this is not specific. So if your neighbor happens to have a really fancy car but not an ox, and you're coveting his car, you're not safe, by the way. That's still sin. This is just a list to help us understand how this works. This is a first, uh, excuse me, this is a a 6,000-year-old Israelite man in the desert walking around looking, going, you know what, if I wanted my neighbor's ox or his house or his wife or his servants, that would be coveting. So the same could be said of you. You you walk by your neighbor's house and you say, man, I wish I had that boat, that truck, that house, that family, right? I want those things. That's that's what the idea here is, is that coveting. But notice with me what, what we're learning here. It's not the idea that coveting is sinful. It's the object of what we covet. So I would submit to you that the way you fight coveting your neighbor's belongings is to covet the things of God. Desire and long for the things of God. We are to covet first the kingdom of God. We are to covet first His reign on this earth. We are to covet what is good for our neighbor and right and just and merciful. We are to covet gathering with the body of Christ. We are to covet the things of the Lord. We want to covet that the lost would come to Christ. Once we covet and desire and run after the things of God, we have no time to be called in sin looking for the earthly things. And so I would suggest to you that the, one of the ways in which to turn this commandment into a positive, into a proactive, is just simply change the term. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. How about we say, you shall covet Christ and all His kingdom. You shall seek first the kingdom of God. You shall go after all the things that God describes for us. We, we shall ask the Lord, Lord, we covet that Your kingdom come on earth as it is in Heaven, this is the way we fight coveting. This is the way we move against this passion in our heart to want other things. Let us close with this final thought, and that's simply this. 
we must see in the 10th commandment our need for the Savior. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the end of the Ten Commandments, as we come to the end of the passage, here's what we are learning and have learned and should see. We're in trouble. When I read this commandment and it says, do not covet your neighbor's stuff, and then I hear Jesus say that that's the same as sinning like adultery and murder and, and, and slander and gossip, And then I hear Paul write in Ephesians that if you do that sin, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the conclusion I come up to. I'm in trouble. I've got no hope. I I can try to be better. I can try to work harder. but, But I see in this text that God is searching my heart. And yes, to the outer man, I might seem moral and ethical. I might be a good guy. I might be okay in society around me. But when God looks into my heart, when He sees the desire, when He knows the brokenness that's in there, I'm in trouble. And so are you. We're in trouble. And so here is what the beauty of the 10th commandment, and I would submit to you all the commandments do. The beauty of the commandments are this. Listen now, don't miss this. The beauty of the commandments are this. They are not a set of rules that will save us. They are a set of rules that will crush us and send us to a Savior that will. Send us to a rescuer that will save us. Send us to a place where we can find relief. Brothers and sisters, if you've broken one of the commandments, you've broken all of the commandments. They are a unit. They are together. They are to be seen in totality. And if you break one, you have broken them all. And God says, I desire holiness. I desire perfect. I desire righteousness. And that's not us. And so breaking the Ten Commandments leaves me in need of a Savior. And this is what's so beautiful about the passage is that we read here as we finish the passage that the Israelites knew this. Look with me at verse 18. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off. Now fear can be a good thing. When I fear the traffic, I won't play in the road. When I fear the weapon, I won't think it's a toy. When I fear, right? When I, when I fear the sickness, I'll take the medicine. There, fear can be a, a good thing. And here, brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that, that while the Israelites are trying to figure out how to have a relationship with God, there's an element of goodness here because, because I want you to notice they've just heard God give the law. They've heard God speak, and their reaction is, we shouldn't be here. We we, we don't need to get any closer. They are reckoning with their sin, and they realize that we should not be near a holy God. This is what Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. I shouldn't be here. Brothers and sisters, all of us at some point in our life should reckon with our sin and realize that our sin causes us to be separated from God. And if we do not have a healthy fear of the fact that sin is not invited into the presence of God, then where do we start? We start by falling on our knees and saying, God, we know we should not be here. But I want you to see the beauty of the passage as we close. Look at what happens in verse 19. And they said to Moses, you speak for us. We'll listen to you. But do not get God speak because we're going to die if He speaks. We're not, we're not worthy. We need a mediator. We need somebody in between us and God because our sin has scarred us. It has is, it is tainted us. It has is, it is broken us. We are not supposed to be in the presence of God. 
Notice what Moses says in verse 20. And he said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He, he wanted you to have this reaction. When you're broken over your sin, that's a good reaction. That's a good thing. Then God draws near. What does he say? He draws near to the brokenhearted. He draws near to those who are poor in spirit, those who know they are sinners, those that they know need rescuing. And the people stood off while Moses drew near in the thick darkness. Here's what I learned from this passage. They needed a mediator. And Moses, for a temporary figurehead, became that mediator. But we know the story. Moses died like the rest of them. Moses didn't get into the promised land because of his own sin. Moses was not the mediator that would work. But oh, brothers and sisters, when I read these commandments and I read these last words and I see the smoke and the thunder of God and I know the quickening of my heart that my sin has separated me from him and I have broken these commandments and I do not deserve to be in his presence, all I can do is in fear say, God, I need somebody else to draw near to you. I need somebody else to help me. I need somebody to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And God in his great mercy has answered that through his son, Jesus Christ the perfect mediator, the high priest, the one who's come for us, and he's the one who kept the law perfectly without breaking it, and yet was crucified as a lawbreaker where I should be, and then resurrected on the last day to say to me, now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We don't need Moses. And we can't keep the law. We need Jesus. Jesus has done this. For every time I have committed covet desires in my heart Jesus died for me Jesus stood in the place Jesus stood on the cross and saw the darkness of God rumble and the earthquake shake Jesus is the one who stood for us in fact let me just read to you Romans 8 and we'll be finished Paul would reckon this very thing in Romans chapter 8 when he would say these words For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has reckoned the law in the very body of Christ for you and for me. I'm reminded of the great hymn by Augustus Top Lady rock of ages he writes these words not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands i can't do it but then we find these words all for sin could not atone thou must save and thou alone would you pray with me father we're grateful this morning That as we finish these Ten Commandments, we are overwhelmed with how much you demand, your character, your perfection is demanded from us, and how far we are from it. But Lord, we're so grateful that we don't have to rely on keeping the law, we don't have to rely on Moses mediating, we don't have to look to Father Abraham or Peter or Paul. Lord, you yourself came in the flesh, Christ our Savior. Fulfilling the law perfectly. Dying a lawbreaker in our place. And rising again. Declaring to us that you have done it. You have reckoned the law in your flesh. That we may have forgiveness. Oh, Father, thank you. Brothers and sisters, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and sing a song of response. And what a wonderful song it is. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.
That's our, that's our heart's prayer. We just trust Jesus has done it. But maybe you're here this morning and this particular uh, commandment, this 10th commandment of coveting has is, is twisted your heart. Maybe there's something you have to confess. Maybe you want to pray. Then I encourage you to do that right where you are. I, I ask you, if, if you need prayer, if you want me to, to, to love on you, to encourage you, to listen to you, then after the sanctuary empties, I'll be glad to meet with you. I want us to to stand in just a moment and, and just proclaim that Jesus is sweet and He has done it for us. Lord God, lead us as we sing in response to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing this response to the Lord?